Don't stand, but turn in your Bibles to John chapter 13. That's where we're going to be tonight, John 13. For the past several weeks on Wednesday nights, um, with the exception of the Lord's Supper, of course, a couple weeks ago, we've been working our way through a series entitled Better Decisions. Our lives are in large part made up of a series of decisions. Who we are and where we are today for good or for bad are a product of the decisions we've made over the course of our lives. A good life can be traced back to good decisions. And with some um, exceptions, of course, and extenuating circumstances acknowledged, um, a bad life can often be traced back to poor decisions. And even in the case of negative circumstances, we get to choose how we respond to those circumstances and, and thus affect the trajectory of our lives. At a very baseline level, a decision to get out of bed this morning was a decision to keep your job, was it not? Um, it probably doesn't work well for any of us if we stay in bed. Um, a decision to spend time with your kids um, was a decision to um, invest in a good relationship. A decision about what you eat is a decision about your future, future health or lack thereof. So all, all, the sum of our lives in many ways is a series of good or bad decisions. So about five weeks ago, Pastor Daniel introduced the idea that there's a connection between good questions and good decisions. Good decisions answered and dealt with ultimately lead to better decisions. However, we cannot be guided by questions we don't ask. So he encouraged us to ask the question, am I being honest with myself? Really? Like, am I really being honest with myself? Um, it, it's a helpful question. Pastor Andrew, the following week, asked us to consider, what story do I want to tell? And what story do I want told about me? Um, it's, it's sobering to consider. Pastor Darrell asked us to consider, what is the wise thing to do? And last week, Pastor John asked us to consider, is there attention that deserves my attention? Is there attention in my heart that I should, should probe and investigate and address? What does my conscience say? Okay, so those are the, the questions we've considered in the past weeks. Tonight, we're going to look at our final clarifying question in this series. And our final question is perhaps the most terrifying, but it is also probably the most clarifying it's terrifying because we usually know the answer to the question before we ask it. <laughs> um, we know what the answer will be, but once we actually go through the exercise of asking the question, well, then we can't unknow, right? Now that we know and we've acknowledged that we know, we're accountable. And so it's terrifying in that way. Our final question is terrifying because what you don't or won't know has the potential to hurt you where you have the potential to hurt most. And that's in your relationships. None of us, I don't think, in here envision our futures alone. I'm just looking around the room. We all envision um, someone beside us. We envision living life in community. We envision living life with family and life with friends. And this question, dealt with and answered honestly, has the power to keep those relationships from falling apart. It, it has the power to enhance every relationship in our lives. It, it has the power to heal broken relationships. It has the power to restore things that have been lost. It, it has 
the power to restore broken marriages and broken friendships. It literally has the power to make the world a better place. However, reckless disregard for this question has equal power to destroy every relationship you hold dear. And much of the brokenness and, and despair we see in our world is a regard of reckless disregard for this question. It is the personal, relational nature of our final question, however, that gives so much clarity to our decision-making. To do business with this question is to see how your decision will affect those you care about most. And when you do business with that, it can bring the decision before you into striking clarity. Um, but there is one caveat I would give tonight, and that is that um, if you exercise this, it might not work. You might do right by this question and right by those around you, and those you love and care about the most may not respond. That's always a possibility when we're dealing with people. They may not respond in kind. They may not respond to your love. This question will demand more from you and me than any of the other questions we've discussed so far. It will demand more from us emotionally. It will demand something from us even tangibly. Answering this question, acting upon it, will make someone else's life better, and it's not guaranteed to make yours, um, but it will make the world a better place. So why ask the question at all? If it's going to demand so much of me, why bother? Well, Jesus address, uh, he addressed that challenge when presenting this principle to his disciples. We would all be familiar with the golden rule, would we not? Um, it's familiar and spoken of widely in even non-religious contexts, okay? Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Um, the world knows the golden rule and recites the golden rule. However, this is taken directly from the teachings of Jesus. Okay, Matthew um, chapter 7, verse number 12, records Jesus saying, Therefore, all things whatsoever ye would that men should do to you, do ye even so to them, for this is the law and the prophets. It's the golden rule. Jesus started this. Jesus said, I can, I can sum up in just a few words all the Old Testament law you guys are trying so hard to uphold. He's speaking to religious Jews. He says, your religion um, that you say comes from Moses and the prophets is entirely missing the point. He said, I can sum all this up for you and make this a lot easier. Try this. Love people. Okay, That's what Jesus said. Love people. Just treat them as you would have have them treat you. And if you do that, you won't be in violation of any of the law. Okay? Um, the law is to love people. Jesus said it a little differently in Matthew chapter 22. He said, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment, and the second is like unto it. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments all the law and the prophets. Okay, we're familiar with that, right? According to Jesus, the two greatest commandments are, with everything in you, love God and love people as you do yourself. He said the entire Old Testament 
could be summed up in these two things, okay? Like, like towers that hold up a suspension bridge, okay? You have cables draped over and they rest on this tower. All the weight of the bridge rests on those two towers, okay? If they fail, the bridge goes down. And he says, the Old Testament's like that, that you have these two commandments. And if you fail to do one of those two things, love God or love people, the whole system or any part of the system is going to collapse, okay? He says, love God, love people, that is um, the law. He's saying, you guys make this so complicated. You're so religious. How about this? Just love me and love those I love. Okay? Though often attributed to Jesus, this principle was in the Old Testament all along. Um, the religious Jews simply missed the point. Deuteronomy 6 4 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart and with all thy soul and with all thy might. Okay, the first and great commandment. Leviticus 19.18 says, Thou shalt not avenge, nor bear any grudge against the children of thy people, but thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. I am the Lord. It's there. Okay, they just got caught up in their religion. So this principle, the golden rule, it's beautifully all-encompassing. Okay? And it really can simplify Christianity for us, right? Love God and love people. We get caught up in a lot of different things, but it's simple. But as beautifully all-encompassing as it is, it falls short of our final question. Okay? And Jesus himself is actually the one who upped the ante, as he so often did. <laughs> he brought the Old Testament to a new level. Okay? So what did Jesus tell us to do exactly? Throughout Jesus' earthly ministry, he told of his coming kingdom. He promised something new that would replace the old system. And to the Jews, the Messiah was supposed to be a political figure that would deliver them from Rome. Okay? Um, he was going to overthrow the existing political system and establish a new Israel-centric world order. Okay, so when Jesus said, as he did all throughout the Gospel of Matthew, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Okay, when Jesus said that, what the Jews heard is... You better get on the right side of history here because I'm about to be king. Okay, that's what the Jews heard when Jesus said that. Jesus prophesied of a coming special assembly uh, that he would establish. He said in Matthew 16, 18, And I say also unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Okay, the word church is honestly a modern English construct, but it just means a called out assembly. Okay, um, so Jesus is saying, I'm going to call out this assembly for my purposes, okay? And they see him as a political figure, so put yourself in their context. This assembly could have just as easily been an army gathering behind Jesus in the streets of Jerusalem that the gates of hell could not stand, stand against, okay? So they're thinking in political terms. He, he's going to establish his kingdom. Um, he's, there's going to be this assembly behind him that no one can stand against, um, Jesus claimed to be the fulfillment of Old Testament law and prophecies. In Matthew 5, 17, he said, Think not um, that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but fulfill. This would have only bolstered their beliefs that he was the prophesied Messiah who had come to deliver them from Rome. Jesus, Jesus even claimed to be greater than the sacrificial system of the temple and that he had the ability to forgive sins. And all of this created 
a, a huge amount of expectation in the minds of Jesus' followers. Okay, the, the 12 disciples, of course, but all of the multitudes that followed him. This is evidenced by the fact that when Jesus entered Jerusalem, there was much fanfare and excitement. Okay? People are shouting in the streets and they're excited. They're taking palm branches and laying them in the streets and taking their garments off and laying them in the streets, making a way for the Messiah. And here's Jesus on a donkey, okay, as royalty would have, coming into the city, it's just meeting all their expectations in this way that he is about to be king. He was here to establish his kingdom as, as they understood it, as his disciples would have understood it. Soon Rome would be overthrown. Soon the taxes would stop. Soon Israel would be in a position of power and prominence once more. The excitement okay, in Jerusalem would have been palpable, okay, the energy as he came into Jerusalem. And even those closest to Jesus misunderstood his aims. Okay, you have the 12 disciples who were literally arguing um, during the Last Supper about who would be the most prominent in his coming kingdom. So they're daydreaming about Jesus, you know, and sitting on his right hand and his left as he rules from Herod's palace in Jerusalem. Okay, this is what they're thinking about, and this is what they're expecting. This context for the disciples makes what Jesus said in John 13 so striking. Okay. Jesus was with his disciples in the upper room having the Passover feast after having entered Jerusalem triumphantly. And he began to lay out his expectations for this new assembly or church he had told them was coming. Jesus said to his disciples in John chapter 13, look there with me, in verse number 33, he said, Little children, yet a little while I am with you. Ye shall seek me, and as I said unto the Jews, whither I go, ye cannot come. So now I say to you. Okay, so he says, I'm leaving. Where I'm going, you cannot come. Now, if you're a disciple at this point, you're thinking, okay, wait a second, Jesus. Hold on a second. Uh, I know you said that to the Jewish multitudes, but of course all of them couldn't be with you in Herod's palace. Okay? But what about us? We're the 12 disciples. What are you talking about, Jesus? What about the kingdom? Where are you going? Um, you said that to the, the multitudes, but I, I think there's a misunderstanding here. What, what are you saying? Jesus was their security blanket. Um, they'd given up everything, their careers and businesses to follow a man, and now he was leaving? What, Jesus, what are you talking about? Okay, already this new kingdom is not exactly shaping up the way they expected. Okay? Jesus continued. Look at verse number 34. He said, A new commandment I give unto you. Okay, again, that you think, Jesus, what are you talking about? We have lots of commandments. The Pharisees remind us of that every day. Okay? We have lots of commandments. And besides, you've kind of already simplified this whole system by saying love God and love people. Okay, so a new commandment, Jesus? Um, what, what's, what's all this have to do with the kingdom? Okay, he continued. He said, a new commandment I give unto you, that ye love one another. Okay, clearly, Jesus was not commanding the disciples to feel something. He was commanding them to do something. But this isn't necessarily new. Okay, again, Jesus said, love God and love people. They'd been commanded to do this already. The disciples knew it. We knew it. We know it. Okay. But what Jesus said next was new. It was very new. It, 
was in fact revolutionary. It was and is countercultural. It was the foundation of his new kingdom that he had talked so much about. And it's the foundation of our final question tonight. He said, a new commandment I give unto you that ye love one another as I have loved you. Okay, now that was new. That brought things to a whole new level. It did for them, and it, did, and it does for us. Up to this point, the expectation had been that you love others in a similar fashion to the way you love yourself. Okay, but Jesus loved people more than he loved himself. That's a new level. Um, Jesus said, love one another as I have loved you. And he loved them more than he loved himself. He, he actually esteemed his own life as less than theirs. He died and gave up his life so that they might live. That's a different standard of love. And I could stop right there, and that would be a lot for us to consider tonight. Okay? Love others more than you love yourself. Not like you love yourself, but more so. Okay? This was extraordinarily personal for the disciples. This is striking to me. When Christians hear that, love others as I have loved you, we immediately think of the cross. Okay, this is the first thing that comes to our mind. But for these men, it would not have been. They did not yet know that was going to be Jesus' death, and they did not understand yet that Christ was going to die for their sins. Okay, evidently, Jesus had lived his life with these men in such a way for the last three years that through his life, not through his death, he could increase the standard by saying, love one another as I've loved you. Okay? It was personal for them. No doubt he could go around the table to each of them personally and recall times and places when he had loved them, shown grace to them, been patient with them, and forgiven them in, a, in an exceptionally personal ways, in selfless ways. They all would have been humbled by recalling his demonstrations of love. Jesus concluded his new kingdom manifesto in verse 35. Look there. He said, By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if ye have love one to another. He said, by this one singular thing will men know. He didn't say, by these things will men know, or by this list will men know, but by this one singular thing will men know. He says, how will men know you are Christians? By the way you love one another. How will you be identified as citizens of my kingdom? by the way you love one another, and by the way you serve one another. How will you be identified as a part of this assembly, the church that I'm going to start? By the way you love and serve selflessly one another. That was the identifying mark. And this love is so singular and unique that it stands out from among the love of the world as an identifying characteristic. Okay, the world gets the golden rule. Okay, that's just called kindness. It's just being a decent person. Do unto others as you'd have them do unto you. But this standard, love others more than you love yourself, okay, that's unique. 
and it's to be the identifying mark of a member of Eastland Baptist Church. We're part of this kingdom Christ started, and our church is a manifestation of His assembly. The single most unique characteristic of a member of Eastland Baptist Church should be the way you love and serve everyone else in this room. That's how you should be identified to someone out there and how I should be identified to someone out there. Jesus' primary concern was not that the, that the disciples believe something. He insisted they do something. They were to love as he loved. Okay, his concern was not that they hotly debate and hold to true and right doctrine. Okay, that's important. But that's not how they were supposed to be identified. They were supposed to be identified by the way they loved one another. Okay? He was not concerned that they be identified by the strict standards they held themselves to. Although we should probably uphold some standards. I don't think anybody here would argue that. That wasn't supposed to be what identified them as Christians. Okay? And that's often what we think. I'm going to be identified by my standards or by my doctrine. But Jesus says, I want you to be identified by your love for one another. Okay? Jesus' primary concern was not that his disciples be fundamentalist, although we should be concerned about the fundamentals of the faith. He was concerned that the, they be people who had experienced his love and had allowed this love to compel them to love one another. That was to be the identifying characteristic. So if Christ's love was not already clear to the disciples at this point in John chapter 13 at the Last Supper, it would have become strikingly clear in just a matter of hours as Christ was brutally murdered and made to experience their hell. And they, I, you know, I don't know when each of them would have realized that that was for them. But if it wasn't clear, at some point it became strikingly clear for them. The crucifixion of Christ is a demonstration of love that's unparalleled. And that's the expectation Jesus puts on you and me. That we love one another at that level. One commentator said, the new commandment is simple enough for a toddler to memorize and appreciate. Profound enough that the most mature believers are repeatedly embarrassed at how poorly they comprehend it and put it into practice. Love one another as I have loved you. So must you love one another. So that's the commandment. But almost as unique as the command itself was the motivating factor that was to compel his disciples to love in this way. This love that Christ was modeling and that true followers of Christ are expected to emulate is the motivating factor in and of itself. Okay? Jesus did not give as a motivator love for God or fear of God or dedication to God. That wasn't to be the reason that they did this. Jesus did not demand His disciples love one another based upon His authority as God and His right to ask their obedience and allegiance. He never played the God card. Okay. Jesus did not leverage his own holiness, righteousness, or authority. What was to compel the disciples to love in this way? Jesus leveraged his example. He said, love others as I have loved you. It was not Jesus' supreme position or authority 
or his holiness that was to compel them to obey. It was his selfless example. Okay, turn to Philippians chapter 2. Paul leveraged this same example when he was exhorting the Philippian believers to get along okay, and love one another and stop fighting with one another. Look at Philippians chapter 2, verse number 1. Paul said, If there be therefore any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, any bowels and mercies, fulfill ye my joy, that ye be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. So, in other words, Paul's saying, stop fighting, okay? Get along. Get along with one another. Start putting others before yourself. Esteem others more than you esteem and greater than you esteem yourself. How about this? Start giving others the same grace and love you've experienced. Okay. That was Paul's argument here. Okay, he continued. He said, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Okay. Who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. Okay. He didn't see it as something to be hoarded. But he made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death. But not just any death, even the death of the cross. Okay. The love of Christ if truly experienced by us, ought to compel us to love others. The humble Christian should ask himself or herself, who am I? What rights do I have in light of such love? In light of such willingness to give up rights, what rights do I have? Why can't I love? Why can't I serve? This love that has been shown me compels me to do better. It inspires me to love just a little bit more. That ought to be the heart of the Christian. Such love is simple, but it's really demanding. We all know that, don't we? Human beings like rules. We like systems. It's in our nature. That's why we're so prone to religion. Rules are black and white. They're they're really easy to understand. Um, rules demand nothing of us. They demand no commitment. They demand no buy-in. They just demand our compliance if we choose. Okay? It's very easy. They create wiggle room and allow for loopholes. About a year and a half ago, Ashley and I um, were able to go on a cruise um, for the first time, and we really enjoyed it. But this was back when COVID restrictions we're still in full force on cruise ships. Um, the list of things they sent to my inbox was kind of ridiculous. Um, there were a host of criteria we had to meet in order to get on the ship. I might say all of the criteria and policies and regulations ended up being a total joke. Um, the cruise ships were just trying to keep the CDC off their backs. Um, they didn't even adhere to their own policies. But one of the criteria was that you could not test positive for COVID or come into contact with someone who had tested positive for COVID within two weeks of sailing. 
You know, that's a really high standard because pretty much everybody had COVID. Um, so you couldn't test positive or you couldn't come into contact with someone who had tested positive for COVID within two weeks. And you had to have, this was very specifically worded, you had to have a proof of a doctor administered, it have a, I'm gonna get all the words mixed up here. You had to have proof of a negative doctor administered COVID test that was taken within 72 hours of getting on the boat. So Ashley and I actually went down to Galveston like three days before the ship. So we had to set up an appointment there in Galveston with a doctor, have proof, take this to the cruise ship, have proof that we had a negative test. Um, so the standards were really high. So within the two week window before the cruise, which is the window in which you're not supposed to come in contact with anyone who's tested positive for COVID. Within that two week window, Ashley and I were at Walmart smelling um, some clearance candles. And I picked one up and I sniffed it. And after almost passing out and with a candle induced headache, I handed it to Ashley and she sniffs it and says to me, I can't smell it. Okay, now I gave her one of those COVID glances, which is kind of like, you know, I looked at her and um, I thought you can't smell it. Like that was intense, but maybe I assumed it was just that particular fragrance. So I picked up another one and I smelled it and handed it to Ashley and she said, I can't smell it. So we grabbed a COVID test and we went home and sure enough, she tested positive for COVID and we're like, a week and a half before the cruise. And we didn't tell anybody. We didn't tell any of you. Um, <laughs> we came to church and acted like we didn't have COVID. So, um, <laughs> not really, <laughs> we didn't do that. Um, she was completely asymptomatic, but she did test positive. So, um, to give a little more context, we had had a cruise scheduled in 2020 that had also been canceled because of a COVID surge. So, I'm thinking to myself, I'm getting on that boat. <laughs> I don't care what it takes. But that was really bothering me because I was thinking, I'm going to have to lie to those people. And I will, because I'm getting on that boat. <laughs> and so um, I was really wrestling with this. And if those who know me best know that I have a pathetically sensitive conscience and it's not a virtue, it's honestly pathetic. I was the one who, when we were kids, would pour my heart out to mom and dad um, with all my sins and Nathan and Hannah would bear the consequences because they didn't confess. So I have this conscience and it was really weighing on me that I was thinking about lying to these people. And um, I didn't want to, but I was going to. So I found a loophole. Um, I started reading these policies and they said that you had to have a negative doctor administered test proof within 72 hours of sailing. They did not say whether or not the, um, at the two week window before um, that a, in order to be disqualified, it required a doctor administered test. They didn't say that. They just said test positive. But I assumed since they didn't say, the standard was the same. Um, so Ashley hadn't been tested by a doctor and um, therefore we didn't really know whether or not she had COVID. <laughs> so I found my loophole. Now. Long story short, we got to the cruise terminal and I, I kid you not, it was the biggest joke. Like they have hundreds and even thousands of people crammed in a small space. They didn't ask us any questions. They didn't even ask to see the paperwork. They didn't care. Um, so I didn't have to lie, but I, even though I was prepared to. But my point is, what's my point? 
Rules create loopholes, okay? And we all understand that. Rules create loopholes. We say things like, what's wrong with it? Technically, I didn't, technically. Show me a chapter and verse. It doesn't say that specifically, so all I said was, right, we all understand what it is. Rules create loopholes. Rules allow for loopholes. But love ruthlessly closes all of them. And that leads us to our final decision-making question. And to me, it's the most terrifying and clarifying question of them all. It's the relationship question. We need to ask ourselves, what does love require of me? What does love require of me? This question should be a part of the decision-making process in every decision we make in every moment of every day. It should inform how you interact with your spouse, with your kids, with your boss, with your coworkers, with church members. What does love require of me? It should shape your attitudes, your words, your spirit, your spending, your work ethic. This question, what does love require of me, obliterates self-righteous justification for actions, and it exposes hypocrisy. This question, what does love require of me, gives clarity where the Bible doesn't necessarily give clarity. And it removes the need for chapter and verse. The answer to this question, if asked, cannot be escaped. You can't get around it. What does love require of me? It's a brutal question, and it's one we don't often like to answer. I would venture to guess that if you asked yourself that question when faced with the decision, you would know the answer probably 99% of the time. Um, it's clarifying in a very real way. What does love require of me? But just in case I'm wrong, in case it doesn't give clarity 99% of the time, and that, or maybe in case it's that 1% of the time, let's look at what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Turn there in your Bibles if you don't mind. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Paul spells it out pretty clearly. First Corinthians chapter 13, verse number 1, in case it's not clear, Paul said, Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not charity, I am become as sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains and have not charity, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned and have not charity, it profiteth me nothing. What's he saying? He's saying, I could be doing everything just right. I could be technically right about everything I could have a basis for winning every argument on these issues of tongues and prophecy and faith. I could do all these things because the Bible gives me a right. Okay? The Bible gives me a right. I could do a bunch of religious works and, and I could have everyone looking at me thinking, uh, I'm living a life full of good decisions, but if I lack love, it's just noise. And it profits me nothing. So what does this love look like? He said, charity... Just another word for love, suffereth long. Love is patient with people. It doesn't demand its way, and it allows room for others to be human. 
Charity is kind. Love is simply good to people for the sake of being good. Love gives of what I have to others without condition. Charity envieth not. Love is genuinely happy for others when good things happen to them. Love is not threatened by the success of others. Love never delights in the downfall, loss, or hurt of others. Love looks at others with joy for the good things they've received, not with a desire to take those things for itself. Charity vaunteth not itself, is not puffed up. Love doesn't boast of itself. Love doesn't parade around and look down at others. Charity doth not behave itself unseemly. Love is appropriate and respectful towards other people. Charity seeketh not her own. Love puts the needs of others before the needs of self. Charity is not easily provoked. Love is slow to anger. Charity thinketh no evil. Love assumes the best in people. Charity rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in the truth. Love is burdened by sin and wants all people to know the truth. Charity beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, endureth all things. Love sees the best in people and gives them room and grace to grow. Okay. As I mentioned, I think we know the answer to our question probably 99% of the time, but just in case we don't, does that not spell it out? 1 Corinthians chapter 13, Paul clears it out, or spells it out pretty clearly. So this question is hard. Um, it's one we may not want to answer, honestly, or even ask in the first place. But before you blow it off, I would ask you to consider one thing. And that's this. Do we not expect the same kind of grace and love to be extended by those closest to us? Do each of us not expect to be treated the way Paul outlined in 1 Corinthians chapter 13? Okay. If that's what we expect of other people, if we require this question be asked by others, should we not ask it of ourselves? Okay. What does love require of me? I think we all know the answer. How would your life look different if in every single decision you've ever made, you had previously decided to protect your relationships above all else? What would your love look like? Or I mean, sorry, what would your life look like? If you had decided to protect your relationships above your pride, above your passions, above your desires, above your ego, above your possessions, above your rights, how would your life look different? It's a simple question, but the ramifications of asking it and acting upon the answer are far-reaching. So I hope we'll consider that and, and, and give thought to it tonight as we go into our lives. What does love require of me?